were talking about Ashlyn's lack of wife. Oh, darn. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm there goes all my plans. Hi, and welcome back to I'll Tell You What, a spoopy podcast. I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Miranda. I've been cleaning. Yeah, Miranda's been um, cleaning. But I ran out of hooks. I bought these special hooks that go into drywall, but they they don't go super far in, so you mm-hmm. don't, don't have to worry about it. Um, but I only bought a pack of five, and I need more of them, so okay. I couldn't finish my one little picture area. <laughs> She just has one. one. She just has one picture laying on her. Notice chair over that there. it's the the only picture that's not up is the one of me and Josh. <laughs> nice. Oh yeah, there's two of you and me on there. Yes. Oh my goodness, adorable. Oh, we hang. We hung a Hoffrey beautiful portrait that Josh's sister painted. It's, yes. It's, um, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's Hoffrey, even though their dog's name is actually Humphrey. <laughs> I like it. It's it's charming. Yeah, I guess we'll include a portrait of it on Twitter, par Josh's request. So it's been a week, as you can probably tell from Miranda. I don't know if I'm keeping I've this right. I've had a lot of free time. I have had not a lot of free time. I've been busy at work. I've been out of we practice for so long. We get it. You so have long. a new job. <laughs> for <laughs> Good for she you. She doesn't even let me tell you what the job is. Anyway. <laughs> I wish my candle was lit, but it's not. And on that complete... I'm trying to mind tell Josh to do it, but he has his headphones on um, do not disturb mode. So I think if I stare at him long enough, maybe. Well, you know what? While you're talking about minds, Miranda, I'll tell you what. Ah, What do you tell me? I'll tell you about L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. We had a discussion about this for... Not on on Christmas? Uh, Something like that. Was it on Christmas? (laughs) Yes, it was on Christmas because the kids weren't here. Oh, no. (laughs) What delightful Christmas conversation, you know? Yeah. But so so what do you know about L. Ron Hubbard? Uh, That he's the the founder of Scientology, and that's all I remember. What do you know of Scientology? (laughs) (laughs) That it's... uh, Really creepy. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the people... Okay. Downtown Kansas City, there's yes. a Scientology church, and they they put up a large sign on top of their building, and everybody got upset about it. But that's besides the point. They had that up I there used for a to long drive, time they lit it. I used to um, drive down Grand Boulevard a lot, mm-hmm. um, pretty much daily. And every day, I would see this... And I finally figured out where they were going. Every day, I would see this group of people wearing the same outfit... All of them wearing this, like, black business outfit. And I was so confused. And then one day, I finally, like, saw where they were going. And they were all walking into the Scientology building. And I went, oh, it's a cult uniform. (laughs) So that's really all I know. terrible. That's all I know. Yeah, so, so, you know, it's it's got a reputation for being a sort of cult. Yes. Okay. Sort of. I'm well, sure. they they publicly denounce that it's a cult. The thing is, do, isn't everything a cult until it's been around for like a hundred years? Kind of, and um, have like like tenants and a, a book or a Bible oh, they have or a book. Oh. oh, they got a book, <laughs> but they haven't been around for a hundred years. No, not yet. So technically, they're still. A cult, They've I'm still got sure. another thirty years until that. We really need to look up like the criteria of what is a religion, what is a cult. Actually, uh, that's my next point. Is oh. you know what is a cult. Look at me go. Except technically a cult could refer to anything that holds the devotion of a group of followers. So really anything could be a cult, including, you know, Christianity. Patrick Mahomes is a cult. 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, no. It's <laughs> <laughs> called Mahomanism. No, seriously, though. Uh, if a movie or series has a cult following, for example, like people have a cult following for... What are you uh, trying to say, Ashlyn? <laughs> I'm calling you out on your Back to the Future obsession, Miranda. <laughs> Often, mm-hmm. cults are religious, but not always in a harmful way. Yeah, no, no, no. So what would make a cult toxic? Um, being creepy. Uh, How do you obsession. define creepy, Miranda? <laughs> Um, obsession to the point of like you know delusion, um, <laughs> but but how do you qualify what is a delusion and what is not? Because like really, religious beliefs are beliefs. Delusions are just another form of beliefs. Um, har- harmful to one's mind or self, maybe. Yeah, but even then, there's that gray area. I swear to God, Ashley, if you're playing devil's advocate right now, I'm not actually. I'm crazy. really not. So first of all, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and watch a lot of stuff about cults what? and everything. Oh, yeah. You? Yeah, I know. It's weird. I would have never guessed. That's not up your well, alley so at all. I've, I've found a few things, and I don't know if I heard this somewhere or if I just decided it for myself, so I, I don't know. Uh, but I personally have a list of criteria that I've kind of put together for qualifying a cult as toxic. Oh. They have tenets that are isolating, first okay. of all. So, like, yeah, they get you away from Yeah, they the demand that public. you don't associate with anyone outside of the cults, mm-hmm. usually with the notion that those people will corrupt you. Yeah. And then there's also one person that usually sets themselves up as the head yeah. of the cult, you know? Like, they're either a prophet or a savior, and thus they know more about the great beyond than any other mm-hmm. followers. Mm-hmm. Because they're in this position of power, they then have... They, yeah, they pray up. Yeah, they, they, they start to prey upon their people. People who are, who are lost looking for Mm -hmm. any kind of direction, looking for just knowledge, really. Oh, yeah. Looking for something. Yes. So they typically, from what I've seen, they typically prey upon college-age students or middle-aged people Mm -hmm. um, because those are, like, two big pivotal moments in your life. Oh, yeah, because you either have no... Because you have no idea what you're doing, generally, when you're in college. When you're in college. Well, a lot of people have moments where they're kind of... (laughs) Not midlife crisis, but you know what I mean? A a crisis of self-identity. Oh, yeah, because you're finding yourself. Exactly. And so they prey upon that kind of thing. So by setting themselves up as, like, this prophet Mm -hmm. and that you can only believe what they say and not what the people who you know and trust Mm -hmm. can tell you. It's that whole isolation that basically makes it so the individual is easily manipulated. And so for future reference, when I will usually talk about a cult on here, it's got some sort of toxic quality that usually falls under that whole umbrella. It's what what everybody actually thinks a cult is, basically. Yeah. Uh, Except clearly defined now. (laughs) Yeah, when people talk about cults, this is typically the kind of cult they're talking about. All right. So what is Scientology? I, once again, I, yes, they wear I weird outfits, I, and that's all I know. <laughs> From Scientology.org. Scientology is a religion in its highest meaning, as it helps bring man oh. to total freedom and truth. Oh, yeah? The essential tenets of Scientology are these. You are an immortal spiritual being. Ooh. Your experience extends beyond a single lifetime, and your capabilities are unlimited, even if not presently realized. Ooh. Furthermore, man is basically good. He is seeking to survive, and his survival depends upon himself and his fellows and his attainment of brotherhood with the universe. So they're they're science hippies? Actually, that's a really good way of putting it. They're science hippies. (laughs) (laughs) Except, depends on what you define as science. Um, Anyway. Yeah. We'll get into that, though, (laughs) in this side. For this episode, we're mainly focusing on L. Ron Hubbard who yes. is the founder. We'll get more into like Scientology mm-hmm. and the impact it's had 
do, in the do next you, park. Do you know why there's a church of science, like such a large church of Scientology here? I mean, there's there's Scientology churches all over the place. In either of these parts, do you get into the, why they wear the same outfit? You know what? I might. I haven't done all the research okay. for part two yet, so. I want you to look that up for me. I will absolutely look that up I for you. I don't know if it was a coincidence. Or it might just be a coincidence. To, or if they're required to wear those, because they were all wearing the exact same thing. That's kind of hilarious. But also, there's only so much I can actually go into because Scientology itself is such a mysterious mm-hmm. kind of thing, unless you decide to Join. ask them for uh, material. Recently, did you see all the signs they put up recently? You do not, whatever you do, do not ask them for material, okay? That's yeah. a running joke. Uh, no, but like, have you seen all the signs <laughs> they put up recently? Um, they, it's di- diaphragmatic, is that what they're saying? Dianetics. Dianetics. Um, oh, so, yeah. so instead of putting Scientology on the on the things, they're saying Dianetic, like call this Dianetic oh, hotline yeah. or whatever, and it's like, need no. help, lost, Depressed. So we'll talk a lot about Dianetics, actually, and in this and they're, part. And they're everywhere. They put There's one around the corner from us. There, There is a difference between Dianetics and Scientology, but Scientology uses Dianetics. We'll, we'll get into Dianetics in a moment. So L. Ron Hubbard. Yes. Lafayette Ron Hubbard is known primarily as two things. <laughs> one, as the founder of Scientology, and two, a science fiction writer. L. Ron Hubbard was a college dropout. His father was in the Navy, which resulted in his family moving around mm-hmm. a lot growing up. However, when Hubbard tried to join the Naval Academy, he failed his entrance exam. <laughs> Loser. Later, he was diagnosed with myopia, which would have barred him from being accepted regardless. Yeah, myopia is just eye problems. He attended George Washington University in 1930, but by yes. the following year, he was placed on academic probation. Mm-hmm. This was not the first time his grades had caused him trouble. He had been dropped from enrollment at Helena High School in Helena, Montana, due to his poor academic record. Mm. In June of 1932, he organized a trip to the Caribbean in what appears to be an attempt at finding forgotten pirate treasure or artifacts in the strongholds of the Spanish Main, which is the area of South America mainland that I feel was. Like somebody's part been of watching Empire. like too much Goonies or something. In the end, he had nothing to show for his trip, and the ship's captain ordered its return to Baltimore as funds began to run low. Hubbard didn't return to university afterward. What? What a shock. So already we're starting to get kind of an idea of like this this person. Did I even say when he was born? No. He was born in 1911. You know, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> so Hubbard first married in April of 1933. So he was 22 at the time. Is he still alive? No. Okay. But I he, didn't think so. I mean, he'd be old. No, he died in 1986. Ah. He got married to Margaret Polly Grubb, who he m- had met in February of that same year. Aw. So he'd known her for two months. Oh, God. <laughs> Wait. I didn't hear the date. But <laughs> yeah. In April of 1933, he married this woman he'd met in February. That's actually less than two months. I've heard people doing it in three <laughs> and that's already pushing it. But two? So she actually um, was pregnant when they got married. Mm. But unfortunately, she had a miscarriage. Aww. They did, however, go on to have two children. Okay. Well, The family was known for being constantly strapped for cash, and Hubbard became a prolific writer for Pulp Fiction magazines mm. in order mm. to sustain them. Fun, fun. So often used pen names. Oh, yes, your fun pen names. Yes. Uh, Winchester Remington Colt. 
Like C-O-L-T. Right. He even threw Colt in there. Yes, but this was more like the Colt action oh. rifle. Oh. Or, also, or like Winchester and Remington. Oh. <laughs> We're both guys. Right. I thought it was funny. Uh, Joe Blitz. Joe Blitz. <laughs> and Legionnaire, 148. I feel like that's <laughs> a name of something. You know, like yeah. a club. I'm part of Club Legionnaire 148. Something like that. It's a speakeasy. In his writings, he covered a wide variety of genres, such as adventure, mystery, travel, and romance. Mm. <gasps> but he was most notably known yes. for his fantasy and science fiction works. Uh. His first full-length novel, Buckskin Brigades, Buckskin came out in 1937. And the following year, he wrote the script for The Secrets of Treasure Island, which became a 15-chapter Columbia Pictures serial based on Robert Louis Stevenson's 1887 novel, Treasure Island. I can read my own notes. Was guys. this the inspiration for Muppets, Treasure Island? Treasure Island might have been, but I don't think the serial was. Around this time, Hubbard began spending a lot of time in New York City, mm. and his wife suspected that he was having affairs there as well. He probably was, because men stink. No, but all men. His stuck, track record is father. not great either. So it's not hard to believe that she had valid concerns there. So in April of 1938, he underwent a dental procedure and had an adverse reaction to one of the drugs. According to Hubbard, this triggered a revelatory near-death experience. Oh, yeah. He claimed that he had indeed died for eight minutes. Oh, claimed. Uh, yeah, I can't I can't actually yeah. verify the validity mm -hmm. of that statement. Claimed, yeah. Um, Whenever something says claimed... Well, okay, I said claimed. Okay. Uh, and there's there's said. a reason I said claimed, he though. He said it. Yes, that is, that is what he told people. That's the thing, though. Like, he told people that. Then there's nothing on there that... And we'll probably get more into that in, in the second part when I talk about how Scientology like mm. interprets his life oh, versus yeah? the life that the public knows, I guess. Mm. Because there is a discrepancy there. Mm -hmm. Under the influence of this experience, yes. he wrote a book that went unpublished, but had the working titles of The One Command and Excalibur. Wow. Yeah, so Hubbard later cited this book as an early version of Dianetics. Dianetics, written in 1950, serves as the base literature for Scientology. Of course. Yeah, so that, that's their Bible. Hubbard claimed that Excalibur would revolutionize everything and would ultimately have a greater impact on the world than the Bible. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Wow. And when he... <laughs> I love your... I love your just... Wow. Tell me more. <laughs> so when he was unable to sell the manuscript... He became depressed and blamed his notoriety as a pulp fiction writer as the reason that people wouldn't take him seriously. That's why. So after the formation of the Church of Scientology, this book would become part of the mythos. And actually, a Scientology publisher in the early 1950s actually sold a gold-bound and locked signed copy of Excalibur for about $1,500 a piece in 1950. Jesus. That amount would be over 16000 well, today. Well, people are really looking for something to believe in in uh, the 50s, huh? Well, this copy required a sworn statement to not let anyone else read the book as it, quote-unquote, contains data not to be released during Mr. Hubbard's stay on Earth. Oh, so can you look inside it now? I don't know, maybe. Are we allowed to well, know okay. it now? Because he's dead. They, they believe that, you know, humans are immortal spiritual well, beings. Well, clearly they're not because he died. Well, no, they don't. They don't 
stay in the same body, but their mm. spirit, you know, reincarnation, uh, things like that. Who is he? Um, Tom Cruise? So the book also yes. carried the warning that apparently four out of the first 15 people who had ever read it had gone insane. Oh. Yes. Then why would so you want it? Because Hubbard wrote a book, Miranda. Hubbard joined the Explorers Club in 1940. Oh, did he? The Explorers Club is an awful lot like the Bohemian Club, except oh. that it is based in New York, and mm. its members are dedicated to supporting scientific study and field research instead Rather than, of like, fun supporting arts. the arts. I yeah. don't like that as much. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know anything It may be a right personal now. thing. <laughs> is it because they don't have a weird summer camp that they go to where they uh, well, That's also an part of it, but I also am a little bit partisan because... Or, I'm sorry, burn something at the altar of an owl effigy. Anyway. I'm a little bit partisan because I am part of the arts and not the sciences. <laughs> as we all know, I am not part of the sciences. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, he was granted membership to the club based on his previous expedition to the Caribbean. If you can recall that. His Goonies expedition. Yes. He persuaded the club to let him carry their flag on his Alaskan experimental radio expedition. Oh, yeah? This expedition consisted of him and his wife on a boat named Magician. Magician. However, and then it disappeared. <gasps> no. no. Turn it, because that would have been great. No, the trick is it can't make it more than uh, two days after they started. Oh. So they didn't make it to Alaska. Well, they actually made it to... Uh, Ketchikan, Alaska, which is Alaska's southernmost settlement. So like the furthest, like which tip. is the closest oh. to the continental U.S. Yes. yes. Wow. Uh, after the ship's engine broke, again only two days after they started off. Wow. He wound up having to sell more stories and contribute to the local radio station in order to earn enough money to fix the engine to get them back home. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, he did now. So after this second failed expedition, he applied to the U.S. Navy. And they said, what? Well, this time, he had a recommendation letter that came from a friend he had in the U.S. House of Representatives, Robert McDonald Ford. I'm sorry, he had a friend in the U.S. House of Representatives? Well, because he actually became really well known in, like, the science fiction and pulp fiction communities. Okay, so, and the, so, he so was, this representative so, was, like, real a big fan of science fiction? I guess. Jesus Christ. I don't know. Originally, I accidentally wrote their name as Ronald McDonald Ford. <laughs> I want to believe that's true. Yeah, no, I wrote it down, and I'm like, who did this to their child? And then I double-checked, and I'm like, oh, it was me. <laughs> the letter claimed that Hubbard was one of the most brilliant men that Ford had ever met. Oh, my goodness. Ford later confessed that he didn't know what Hubbard wanted a letter for and had simply given him a blank letterhead saying, hell, you're the writer, you write it. That's really frivolous from a... It's House of Representatives member. Oh, my God. So now we're getting to Hubbard's time in the Navy. And this is a trip. He joined the Navy as a lieutenant junior grade in July of 1941. In November, Hubbard was posted in New York for intelligence officer training. Mm -hmm. The following month, he was traveling through Melbourne, Australia to get to his post in the Philippines when he was abruptly sent back to the U.S. The reasoning given? Yes, please tell me. This officer is not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He is garrulous and tries to give impressions of his importance. He also seems to think that he has unusual ability in most lines. These characteristics indicate that he will require close supervision for satisfactory performance of any intelligence duty. So basically they said, um, he cray cray. He's trying to act like he's important. He, he has delusions not... of grandeur. Yeah. And you gotta watch him and he's closely, a liar. otherwise 
<laughs> Otherwise, he'll go off the rails, man. Jeez. Uh, so some other notable Navy moments. Yes. Oh, more notable Navy moments. Oh, yeah. So in May of 1943, Hubbard had been posted in command of a submarine chaser, the PC-815, on its maiden voyage. Five hours into the journey, he believed he detected an enemy sub. He spent the next 68 hours engaged in combat until receiving orders to return to his commander, Admiral Frank Jack Fletcher. Uh Uh-huh. Fletcher stated, An analysis of all reports convinces me that there was no submarine in the area. Who was he battling with? He said that Hubbard had likely mistaken a known magnetic deposit for an enemy sub. So was he actually launching things at this? Yes. (laughs) 68 hours, Miranda! Did it ever dawn on him that they weren't firing back? <laughs> I don't know. Hey, you know, nothing's been shot at us in this 68 hours <laughs> that we've been in combat, <laughs> launching things at the enemy. <laughs> anyway. Your nautical nonsense. Don't start. No. So the next month, he sailed the PC-815 toward the Coronado Islands, where he conducted gunnery practice. He believed that the islands were uninhabited and owned by the U.S., when in reality, they were owned by Mexico. Yeah. So Mexico complained, and Hubbard lost command of the PC-815. That's so stupid. Mexico the report- filed a complaint. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. It just said Mexico complained. They were like, like, hey, oh U.S.? Hey, um, you have a crazy man over here thinking. Can you that come our, collect your errant you child? Co- collect this guy, because uh, he's on our islands and he's just running amok. And they're like, Ah, yeah, sorry. Well, he's not even on the island. He's just like, thro- like throwing stuff at it. He's using it for gunnery practice. Oh God! Yeah, no, it's bad. So the report stated that he was unsuitable for independent activities and suggested that he be posted to a larger vessel where he could be properly supervised. Oh, my God. It also said that he was lacking in the essential qualities of judgment, leadership, and cooperation. Really? He then spent the next three months in the hospital after claiming to suffer from various ailments, such as stomach ulcers and malaria. Claiming. Yes, claiming. Again, I I can't, you know, vouch for the validity of his statements. He says in his later writings that these ailments were like his mind manifesting them. And that's all part of the whole Dianetics and Scientology oh, thing. Uh-huh. His, his mind kind of manifesting them because he didn't want to be in a certain situation oh, uh-huh. or something. Yeah. yeah. Similarly, when I was young and I was in a crowded room of people and it was loud, my body would give me a fever because I didn't want to be. Miranda, are you a Scientologist? No, my body has defense <laughs> mechanisms <laughs> called get me out of here. My my body, when I'm in a, in a crowded room, just decides to feel like it's having a heart attack. Well, that's different because <laughs> it's that's just probably a panic actually attack. happening. It's actually panicking. Yes. It's fun getting a panic attack every time you go into public. And by fun, I mean it's really annoying. So, after his stint in the hospital... Uh, he yes. was posted on the USS Algol as the navigation and training officer. Why would they put him in charge of anything? Well, Miranda, it was in the 1940s. I don't care. I'm pretty sure. During was... World War II. 
Yeah, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot more <laughs> capable soldiers and na- 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 naval officers. Pretty sure, because they were recruiting a ton of people at that time. Somewhere in the lower ranks, there was probably someone more capable than Mr. Hubbard. The idea that I get from Hubbard is that he is very charismatic. Because that's and the crazy. only way he can get away with half of this crap. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm serious. It, we haven't even started into some of the more ridiculous stuff. Maybe he's charismatic in the way that like I am sometimes with, with people that I, you know, that are above me and whatnot, that sometimes I'll just go, Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. It, it gets very difficult for me to tell where he's actually believing his own hype. Yeah. Um, and where he's straight up lying. I, I can't tell what's delusional. Maybe he's delusional. a compulsive liar. Yeah, he could be a compulsive liar. Uh, we know a couple of those. Yeah, maybe he can't help it. Yeah, and, and they lie for absolutely no reason. Like, there's no, no, there's nothing to gain no. from the lying. There's no reason to lie. They just, they can't help themselves. The lying the sometimes compulsion. makes them even look bad. And yet, they continue to say these things. And you're like, that's not true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you ever actually meet a compulsive liar, it's actually kind of interesting to just hear what they've said mm. sometimes. After he was posted on the USS Algol, He requested transfer to the School of Military Government in Mm -hmm. Princeton in 1944, which was granted. He attended school there until January of 1945, when he was assigned to Monterey, California. The following April, so a few months after, he was admitted into Oak Knoll Naval Hospital, where he cited his ailments to include headaches, rheumatism, stomach aches, pains in his sides and shoulders, and hemorrhoids. Has he tried Pepto? I don't know if he did. Miranda, you should be a doctor. That October, the Naval Board found him to be considered physically qualified to perform duty ashore, preferably within the continental United States. Physically able. Wow. High praise. High praise. By February of 1946, he was transferred to inactive duty. He did not leave the Navy until... 1950, after he wrote Dianetics. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just for reference. So his home life was turbulent at this point. He claimed, quote unquote, that he was abandoned by his family and friends as a supposedly hopeless cripple and a probable burden upon them for the rest of my days. Oh, I'm sure. His daughter, Catherine, however, claims that her mother had refused to uproot them all from Washington to move with him to California, as their marriage already had terminal difficulties and he had dis- chosen to stay in California. That sounds like a him problem. He is now estranged from both uh, Catherine and her brother. Really? So, yeah. Well, he's now dead, so... Well, no, okay, so... The thing is, is that uh, if you look at his Wikipedia page, it actually shows like which children he was estranged from. So in total, he had seven children. Ah! He was not like the only ones he wasn't estranged from were three of them. And one of them had died. I feel like that's a type of estrangement. (laughs) Just a little bit. Just a little. Makes communication. So a lot of his kids want nothing to do with him. I'm not surprised gonna be honest. And now here's where things get really weird. Mm-hmm. So in August of 1945, 
Hubbard had moved into John Jack Whiteside Parsons' mansion in Pasadena. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt? Yes. <laughs> no. So Parsons was a leading rocket propulsion engineer at the California Institute of Technology. How, why is he friends with all these people? As well as a founding member of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. How? You'll find out in a second. Oh my god. Parsons was also a closet occultist slash thelemite and an avid follower of Aleister Crowley and a leader of the lo- of a lodge of Crowley's magical order. That lodge name was Ordo Templi Orientis. So he liked magic? He liked the occult magic, which... so Not like the magic, like, uh, castle or mansion or whatever like that. Place. Right, it's... Not like fun magic. No, like no, like, dark like weird, dark magic, yeah. Ooh. So Thelema is a religious movement developed by Crowley in the early 1900s, and it combines the occult with spiritual philosophies. Oh, so it's like spiritualism. Kinda, yeah. And I'll, I'll get into that in, in a minute. Mm-hmm. Parsons only lent rooms to atheists and those of a bohemian disposition. Really? Oh, yeah. What is a bohemian disposition? I think it's someone who's more into uh, art than they are like into like or? actually caring about life. A little bit. So, bohemian disposition. I mean, granted, bohemians were usually uh, those who placed a lot of value in art. I think that's more what the bohemian disposition is. Not necessarily that they're poor and that they, you know, not not necessarily the starving artist kind of thing. Yeah. Or hippie thing, but a little bit. Anytime I hear bohemian, I think hippie. I still think of Bohemian Grove and the owl effigy. Anyway, I'll never forget. (laughs) Check out our episode on Bohemian Grove, by the way. It's one of our most popular episodes. I know. It's, It's a pretty good one. It's up there in the top 10. Hubbard and Parsons became close friends. Parsons said of Hubbard, Hubbard is a gentleman. He has red hair, green eyes, is honest and intelligent, I'm, and we have become great friends. I'm offended. He moved <laughs> because he has red hair and green eyes. <laughs> I have hazel I, eyes, I, but they're leaning towards green. <laughs> he moved in with me about two months ago, <laughs> and although Betty and I are still friendly, she has transferred her sexual affection to Ron. And they were roommates. Did you even hear what I just said? Yes. And they were roommates. No, I said, he moved in with me about two months ago, and although Betty and I are still friendly, she has transferred her sexual affection to Ron. Although he has no formal training in magic, with a K, of course, because a capital M and a K, magic, uh, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduced that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He describes his angel as a beautiful winged woman with red hair whom he calls the Empress and who has guided him through his life and saved him many times. Maybe it's Jolene. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met and is in complete accord with our own principles. Even though he wasn't a thelemist. But, you know, he he's so in tune with with that that he, mm-hmm. he's, he's so clearly vibing. the most... Yeah, he vibes so hard that he, he is so the most thelemic person. So... Betty here refers to Parsons' 21-year-old girlfriend, Sarah Betty Northrup. I'm sorry, how old was him? Uh, For context, Hubbard was 35 at this time. Parsons and Hubbard worked together to create a sexual magic ritual intended to summon Babylon, the supreme thelematic goddess. Uh Or thelemite goddess. (laughs) So we sort of talked about a Babylon in our The OG Antichrist episode. Yes. Uh, and in Christian theology, she's like super evil. She's more like a demon. I'm just thinking of the place Babylon. 
In Thelema, however, she <laughs> is known. <laughs> I know, I'm just going over that. She is known as the Scarlet Woman and is often identified with Mother Earth. She's also known to be the representation of female sexual impulse and the liberated woman. I really want them to just leave us redheads alone. I really want people to stop associating like liberated woman with that necessarily. Yeah. It it irks me because I myself, you know, am a feminist. Because it still feels like somehow they're sexualizing it. Yeah, and it's creepy. I'm like, don't because do that. Because that's still misogynistic. That's the exact opposite of what we're exactly. trying to do. Exactly. I was like, that's still misogynistic. Yeah. So, so I'm not saying anything against like people who, you know, want to revel in their sexual liberation or anything. Like, you. you know what? Yeah. Fantastic for you. But it's it's these it's these straight men yeah. who are like, yay, feminism. Let's do a sex you have magic you, yeah, ritual. Yeah, let's have a sex magic ritual. <laughs> yeah. This went a little in depth about the ritual and I'm not going to talk about it at all. That's I'm great. just saying that it happened. And we're moving on. <laughs> so Parsons, Northrop, and Hubbard <laughs> combined their savings and set up a business partnership called Allied Enterprises. Oh. Oh, the no. plan was for Northrop and Hubbard to buy yachts in Miami and sail them to the, co- to the West Coast to sell for profit. Mm. Hubbard, however, had written to the U.S. Navy requesting permission to leave the country and go sailing to Central and South America, as well as China, to collect writing material. Yeah, uh-huh. This was without Parsons' knowledge. So Parsons had contributed the most money to this venture. And Alistair Crowley criticized his actions, saying, Suspect Ron playing confidence trick. Jack Parsons' weak fool. Obvious victim prowling swindlers. Basically, Alistair Crowley comes in and, like, this is the originator of an occultist religion kind of thing. Saying that, uh, Parsons, you idiot, he tricked you. I, I... I feel like there's something to say when uh, Crowley thinks you're a bad yeah. guy, you know? I get that. When Crowley thinks you're the crazy one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Parsons hmm. attempted to prevent them from leaving the country, but ultimately lost most of his money in this venture and had to sell his mansion in order to recoup his losses. Oh, no. Yeah. He had to sell his mansion. In August of 1946, Hubbard married Northrop. You know, the girlfriend he stole from Parsons. <laughs> That's, that's the worst part. It's like Parsons not only lost his money, poor but boy. also his girlfriend. Like poor, <laughs> poor Parsons, you naive, naive occultist, occultist baby. Uh, the problem with this marriage to Northrop, however, was that he was still married to Polly at the time, and she did not learn of his new wife until 1947. So the next year, Exciting. in June of 1947. He and Polly officially divorced, with Polly granted custody of the children. Oh. In 1948, Hubbard and his second wife, Sarah, moved to Savannah, Georgia. Where did Sarah come from? Sarah Northrup. Sarah Betty Northrup. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I refer to her as Sarah from now on because technically now she's Hubbard. Anyway, he and Sarah moved to Savannah, Georgia, where he claimed to work as a volunteer lay practitioner in a psychiatric clinic. Again, claimed. I don't know how much this guy is actually doing versus, you know, lying about. Yeah. In August of that year, he was arrested and fined for petty theft after trying to pass a fraudulent check. So it kind of becomes obvious a little bit that he's still struggling for money. Really? Despite swindling Parsons for, like, everything. So in January of 1949, he wrote to his friends claiming he was working on a book of psychology about the cause and cure of nervous tension. By April, he wrote to several professional groups to offer his research, but none expressed interest. Weird. 
So he turned to his editor, John W. Campbell. Mm. And Campbell was actually known for being the editor of Astounding Science Fiction, which was a magazine that published a lot of science fiction Mm. works. There was an award that up until, I think, a couple years ago was named after him uh, for people who had, like, written something that kind of pioneered, like, a new age in uh, science fiction. I think I've heard of that. Yeah, except uh, it was renamed because apparently he's racist, so. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. So, Campbell had a long-time interest in psionics, like psychic powers, mm-hmm. and fringe psychologies. Mm. And I know you're uncomfortable because of yes. psychology, but guess what, Ashland? Lots of people use psychology for evil. Like Freud. Get over Freud. I will never be over Freud. He's dead. We're not going into Freud right now. Maybe later. Okay, so Campbell got in contact with a Dr. Joseph Winter to help Hubbard develop his new therapy, which he called Dianetics. Yes. Campbell told Winter, With cooperation from some institutions, some psychiatrists, Hubbard has worked on all types of cases. Institutionalized schizophrenics, apathies, manics, depressives, perverts, stuttering, neuroses, in all nearly a thousand cases. But just a brief sampling of each type. He doesn't Mm -hmm. have proper statistics in the usual sense, but he has one statistic. He has cured every patient he worked with. He has cured ulcers, arthritis, asthma. I'm sorry. He doesn't have statistics. Well, yes. This was something that (laughs) he was... But he has one statistic that does matter. And it's that he cured them all. It's called (laughs) success. Basically. Um... So now we're getting into Dianetics, which is super fun. So with the help of Winter and Campbell, Hubbard developed new techniques for Dianetics, with Campbell recruiting sci-fi fans to test them on. Oh, no. Yeah. The principles of Dianetics. Mm -hmm. Bad or painful experiences are stored in the reactive mind as engrams. I thought it was the hippocampus. Hippocampus is more where uh, memories are like... Formed I was absolutely kidding, less Ashlyn. Where they're stored. I was just saying a random body part. So, <laughs> these engrams. Yes. If left, they can be triggered later in life and cause either emotional or physical ailments. Oh, God. In order to rid oneself of these engrams, they must undergo a process called auditing. So... Like taxes? No. Uh, we'll talk more about auditing uh, in the next episode. Okay. Because it's one of the big practices in Scientology that is actually kind of problematic. Yeah. In essence, the auditing allows an individual to re-experience the bad experiences, thus enabling the engrams to be cleared. Hmm. Once a person is completely rid of engrams, they would be considered to be in a state of clear. Of clear. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Uh, Capital C, clear. Oh. Yeah. So like enlightenment? Basically, yes. Uh, so being clear means wow. that one has a perfectly functioning state of mind and thus would have an improved IQ and photographic memory. Being clear would also heal physical ailments such as poor eyesight, migraines, and the, and the common cold. They don't call it photographic memories anymore? I know, it's eidetic, but... Anyhow. Hubbard believed that about 70% of all illnesses were psychosomatic. Love that. Yeah, that's not ableist at all. Anyway. Your knee is hurting? No, it's not. It's your mind. You can't stand up out of a wheelchair and walk. You can't just 
Get up and walk. You can do it. I believe in you. <laughs> you, you can't can... have heart failure. It's psychosomatic. <laughs> I think your heart Gosh, just hurts. I, wish. I think your heart is actually just hurting. And once we heal your heart, like with with um soul, your soul basically, then you'll be fine. I think it's your funny. heart failure doesn't exist, Ashlyn. So I think it's funny to sometimes go on like heartbreak playlists because they talk about your heart hurting and things like that. And I just laugh. It's fake. The pain the, I'm feeling is fake. The, the, the pain is fake news. <laughs> so, My tailbone is fake news. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. What, what, I'm sorry, what, tra- it was the trauma of the fall. Yes, that was a bad experience, and so now you have an engram, and Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. need to be able to uh, re-experience that bad experience. So you have to go fall again? No, no, you have to talk about it, but someone has to record you. I've talked about it an awful lot. I already talked about it on the podcast. We'll, we'll We'll talk more about auditing next episode. In April 1950, Hubbard establishes Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation. Uh, with, Why is he allowed to do this? With him, his wife, Winter, and Campbell as the board. Mm-hmm. Winter submitted uh, their research on Dianetics to both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the American Journal of Psychiatry. Mm. But it was rejected by both. Aww. Shame. So they decide to publish their work in the May 1950 edition of Astounding Science Fiction. Wow. So they literally published it in something that said science fiction. Yes. In his editorial, Campbell said, its power is almost unbelievable. It proves the mind not only can, but does rule the body completely. Following the sharply defined basic laws set forth, physical ills such as ulcers, asthma, and arthritis can be cured, as can all other psychosomatic ills. Arthritis is psychosomatic? Oh, yeah. You're just imagining that your body's aching. You're all imagining the time. your hand physically deforming. Yeah. 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 So once you clear that up, um, you have straight hands, you'll be fine. Don't need hand surgery. You don't Sorry. need any kind of yeah, no medication. <clears throat> Our mother is uh she she has RA and it has Struck deeply affected her. Yeah. And it has deeply affected her life physically, like so we take it personally. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you, you suggest, if you that. ever hear us talking about anything being ableist and whatnot, it's because our mother's in a wheelchair and um, we're bitter about we're ableism. Bitter about <laughs> every time I, I walk into buildings, I'm like, wow, okay, so nobody in a wheelchair could get around in here. Okay. It's like, wow, you have a wheelchair ramp and then a step up. Oh God, yeah. That one's that one's one of my favorites. Or, oh, you're using your wheelchair ramp as storage for your patio furniture. That happened once. That was bad. That angered me. Like you guys realize that no handicapped people can get in your building now, and that's super ableist and wrong. Yeah. I was gonna bring my mom here for lunch, and now I will never eat here again, and I have not. So uh, apparently Dianetics can can cure this. I know. Wow. Maybe mom should become a Scientologist. No. (laughs) So again, this right now is a therapy and not a religion. And you kind of need to keep that in your mind a little bit. Yeah. So several people would go on to agree with the unbelievable part of Campbell's (gasps) statement. Mm -hmm. The unbelievable. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So... (laughs) I like that. Thank you. So the publication in Astounding Science Fiction was accompanied by the publication of Hubbard's book, Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, Mm. on May 9th, 1950. 
So the book was a commercial success, with it being sold at a rate of about 4,000 copies a week. By August of that year, 55,000 copies had been sold and 500 Dianetic auditing groups had been set up across the country. Oh my gosh. Despite the success of the book, it did garner heavy criticism. The APA, or American Psychological Association, stated that the claims in the book were not supported by empirical evidence. They're like, this has not been proven. There's no statistics here. What the heck is wrong with you? (laughs) He has no statistics, except success. (laughs) Scientific American said that the book had, quote unquote, more promises and less evidence per page than any publication since the invention of printing. Wow. It's almost like that one paper. Remember that like one? Wakefield? Yeah. It's yeah. Like the except, Wakefield this paper. Is, except this is more, this is more, this is less evidence than the Wakefield paper. Wow. Well, the funny thing is, is that even Hubbard's sci-fi contemporaries found fault with it. So Isaac Asimov called it gibberish. Oof. And Jack Williamson said it was, quote-unquote, a lunatic revision of Freudian psychology. Oh. Wow, he called you a Freud ripoff. And that's bad, because Freud also had, like, very little empirical evidence, if Mm. any. Despite the criticisms, several famous people became interested in Dianetics. Some held auditing sessions with Hubbard Mm -hmm. himself, and others still were trained to become auditors. Like Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise did not join at this time. Later. Later. This is the 1950s. How old do you think Tom Cruise is? I don't know what year it is anymore. (laughs) You've been talking for ages. It's 1950 still. We stay in 1950 for a weird amount of time because a lot happened in that year. How old was this man when he finally died? Like 77. Oh, that's not that old. Auditing sessions were not cheap by any means, costing about $500 in 1950, which would be worth over $5,000 today. Jesus. Of course, current auditing sessions, I did look it up, uh, are about $800. So, you know, it didn't exactly keep up, you know, with the, with the price of it. But yeah, $500 in 1950, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, granted, it's a lot of money I'm sorry, nowadays, $800? too. Yeah. If I had $800, you know how much I could buy? I could afford rent. <laughs> I could afford rent for like eight weeks. Yeah, you could. <laughs> I paid dirt cheap. <laughs> Best deal in town. Apparently, the, the trick is to uh, move in with your family. All right. So Hubbard played a very active role at this time and gave lectures over Dianetic ther- therapy. Of course he did. This, however, backfired in August of 1950 mm. when he was giving a lecture at Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. Ooh. He produced the clear Sonia Bianca and claimed that since she had gone through Dianetic therapy, she now had perfect memory. Sonia, however, was unable to remember the color of Hubbard's tie when his back was turned and could not even recall a single physics formula. She was majoring in physics. Oh, I was like, um, okay. No, it was her major. <laughs> so a large part she of the audience... She may want to change her major. <laughs> yeah, right. So a large part of the audience at this point got up and left. Really? Yeah, and after this, everything starts to, like, systematically fall apart. Mm. So Winter began expressing his doubts in the therapy, and in 1951 admitted that he had never seen a convincing clear stating that although he had been told individuals had gone clear, their behaviors did not seem to match up with what the state of clear was defined as. I'm sorry. 
Is Winters like the original guy who was like? He was the doctor that basically was trying to. He's the doctor who said validity to. He was the one who said he has no statistics. No, that was Campbell talking oh. to Winter. Yeah. But success. Yeah, no, but Winter's like the one who took that, and he's like, yeah, sure, I'll lend credibility to this. I've never seen crud. any evidence. He's like, look, um, I'm sold. I, I should, and now, and now he's like, I should have. Maybe I should have asked to see some of this evidence. <laughs> Maybe there should be evidence when we write psychological Maybe. papers. <laughs> Another issue was that other professionals were also entering the Dianetics community separate from Hubbard, as it was structured as an open public practice, meaning they could hold auditing sessions if they wanted to, and people could pay them, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't need Hubbard. At all, so that money wouldn't go to the Hubbard Research Foundation or anything like that. So, uh, Winter and Campbell resigned from the foundation by late 1950. And the foundation was in financial ruin by that point. Because they were very loose with finances. I didn't go too much into this, but like... But, you know, with such solid research and stuff and work ethic, I would assume they'd be really tight-laced on that wallet. Well, the thing is, is that there were so many people going into auditing that there should have been... A, a ton of money. of money. At one point, it looked like one of their foundations should have had about 90000 but only mm-hmm. 20000 was accounted for. I feel like somebody was skimming off the top there. It might have been Hubbard himself, honestly. Uh, yeah, that was uh, what <clears throat> I was inferring. Well, there were, there were several uh, branches of the foundation by this point. Mm-hmm. It was problematic. Mm-hmm. Hubbard's marriage also started collapsing. Again? Yeah. And this one goes a little off the rails. Darn. So Hubbard had started an affair with his 20-year-old public relations assistant in late 1950. Sarah had started one of her own with auditor Miles Hollister. Ooh, the founder of Hollister? No. So one thing that was happening in the 1950s, 1951. No, was, uh, you remember the second Red Scare and the McCarthy trials and the whole search for communists? I do remember the search for communists, but I, I was don't know not why communism. Yet. I don't know why communism always like ends up in these podcasts, but it does. So all roads lead back to communism. Hubbard reported the couple to the FBI in March of 1951, claiming that Sarah was intimate with a communist under coercion because he was jelly. Basically, so what a said, hypocrite! He said Hollister seemed Slavic. For his uh, sharp chin and broad forehead, uh, and cited him as the source for the problems within uh, his foundation. That's racist. <laughs> also, that's the reason you're suspecting him of being a communist, <laughs> is that he looks Slavic. He claimed that Sarah currently had a drug addiction that had been unknown to him until a few weeks prior. Mm-hmm. But the FBI, to their credit, did not take this letter seriously at all. And one agent had added a note to the letter that simply stated, appears mental. Checks out. So after that didn't work, uh, three weeks later, Hubbard seized Sarah and his daughter, Alexis, who was not yet one year old. I'm sorry. He seized people? Yes. He seized them. With the help of some foundation members, yes. Oh my God, he kidnapped them. Yeah, and took them to California, where he tried to find a doctor that would declare Sarah to be mentally insane. He kidnapped his own wife and child. He was unsuccessful and let Sarah go, but took Alexis to Havana, Cuba. Sarah filed for divorce in April of 1951 and claimed that Hubbard had been physically and emotionally abusive, including such actions as strangulation, kidnapping, and pressures to commit suicide. 
Jesus. Sarah was able to secure the return of her daughter by June of 1951, however, by signing a statement swearing that all she had accused him of was false and that she had always believed that he was a, quote-unquote, fine and brilliant man. That's horrible. The foundation remained in a state of insecurity for a few years following that. I wonder why. Until 1952. In 1952, the foundation was dissolved, so Hubbard established a Hubbard College in Kansas. Oh, great. This school, however, was closed six weeks later. Six weeks. Following his marriage to 18-year-old staff member no! Mary Sue Whip. No! No! I object. For reference, he was 41 at the time. I object. Yeah. I object. So the two moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where Hubbard established the Hubbard Association of Scientologists International. He called Scientology the science of certainty. He differentiated it from Dianetics, saying that Dianetics was the process of releasing the mind from distorting engrams, whereas Scientology was the study and handling of the spirit in relation to itself, universes, and other life. Oh, so they're super different. Basically, Scientology can attain what it can attain through Dianetics. Yeah. Financially, starting a cult was a good move on his part because then he gets to control like who has power. Whereas with Dianetics, it was an open public practice. If you set up one church and yourself as the prophet of that church, uh, everything should go through you. And then you have control of the money. So Scientology as a religious practice. Scientology uses Dianetics within itself to help individuals go clear. According to Scientology, a human is an immortal spiritual being called a thetan that has take, Sorry. taken resident in a physical body. A thetan has, of course, numerous past lives. It should be noted that the brain does not control the mind. The thetan does. The brain is part of the physical body and acts more as a switchboard to communicate what is happening in the thetan's mind. By recognizing the thetan, one is able to gain awareness and abilities that are not possible, quote-unquote, in any practice that believes man to be just a body. And that is from Scientology.org. What? This allows... Increased spiritual freedom as well as increased intelligence. Scientology's opinion on psychology. This is what they have on their website for that. Psychology, for instance, had worked itself into a dead end. Having no concept of the existence of an animating factor to life, it had degenerated into a practice devoted solely to the creation of an effect on living forms. Do you know what that says? At all? I blacked out. No. Even if you paid attention, it wouldn't make any sense. I'm going to be honest here. It didn't sound like a dead... So since they could not figure out how the body connected with a mind, the animating factor of life, it simply fell into studying the effects that the mind has on living forms, so like people. Uh-huh. At least that's generally what I gathered from that. The living form could be re- referring to the brain or the body at uh-huh. that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so personally, it seems to me like the words used on their website are deliberately confusing. Because if it's confusing, you're more likely to at least look into it or ask for more information. And as I stated before, the whole running joke, if you ever want to get revenge on someone, just give their information to a Scientologist. They will never be rid of them. Oh, no. Yeah. So that's where I'm going to end it for now, because we've been talking for a long time. And uh, thank God. That was basically Hubbard's life up until Scientology. I don't know, Ash. I might be converted. I don't... Oh, gosh. The thing is, is they they do take some things that kind of make sense because for a long time, psychology didn't really have an answer for, like, you know, how the brain connects with the mind. And they still really don't. 
It just do, okay? And they're they're trying to put more meaning behind it, and I get it, but at the same time, it, it's kind of bizarre. I'll, I'll just say that. It's a bit bizarre. But then again, I also believe a man died on a cross and was resurrected after three days, so some people might call that bizarre. But next time, we'll go into more fun details well, not, well, about ne- Scientology. Next Tuesday. Yes, next Tuesday. We'll go into auditing like how it works and everything. Mm -hmm. The eight dynamics of Scientology. Mm. We'll also talk about various Scientology organizations, such as the Sea Org, Office of Special Affairs, and their uh, practice of dead agenting. What? We'll also talk about their celebrity centers, the influence of Scientology in Hollywood, and also the influence of L. Ron and Mary Sue Hubbard in Scientology. Because like I said, L. Ron didn't die until 1986 which gave him plenty of time to build a cult. Anyway, (laughs) so we'll leave you there for now. Did you learn anything, Miranda? No. Thanks. (laughs) But if you are excited about next I'll Tell You Tuesday to hear the rest of this intriguing tale about Scientology, feel free to message us at matterthanacaterpillar.gmail.com. Or if you're excited for part two of Dear David, which I'm not excited to uh, edit... (laughs) Please visit us, you can visit us at Matter Than a Caterpillar on Instagram. Or, you know, if you have any on of Saturday. your own stories you want to share or, I don't know, anything, you can always tweet at us or uh, slide into our DMs mm-hmm. at Matter Than a Cat on Twitter. Yeah. That'd or, be fantastic. Or visit us on Facebook at ITYW Podcast or I'll Tell You What with a period instead of an ellipses. And... We also have a TikTok. Yeah, we may have some TikToks coming for you soon. I saved some sounds, but Ashlyn decided not to look presentable today. And I decided to feel like garbage. I was too busy. I'm just kidding. Researching. I didn't use a VPN with this research, and now I'm afraid. But it's (laughs) you personally. I look like I haven't slept in a week. You look fine. The kids have bigger baggies under their eyes than you. That's sad, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. Anywho. uh, And with that... We'll leave you with this. Tell your mom. Tell your dad. Tell your friends. Tell the FBI agent listening through your phone. And tell L. Ron Hubbard, who lives in your closet. And good night. Don't put that on me. Don't do that. That's horrifying, Miranda. Just wait for what I say next week. Is it going to be Tom Cruise in the closet? Maybe. (laughs) Unless you have more celebrities for me.